0: So very thankful to be here with everyone. So wish we were together. Uh, We talked about doing uh, like a drive-in kind of uh, setting where cars pulled up and, you know, we would have maybe purchased or rented a FM transmitter and could and everybody would be in their cars and so we had a big discussion around this and uh, with the, uh, all the quarantine issues in place and the shelter in place rules that we have around we wanted to try to honor that of course and, and we talked about well we could still do that potentially if we if we uh, gathered in our cars and we were all laughing and, and recognizing that we're too affectionate as a community and as a people and as a church and as a family to get away with that because we would probably get out of our cars and start hugging each other and you know and here we are violating the authorities that we are trying to honor and so we thought uh, as much as we'd like to do that we didn't want to take the chance of our affection um, ruining it for everyone so it's a silly way to put it but it's just who we are and so I'm incredibly thankful for us as a family and who we are as a church and as Karen said our church isn't about a building or facility uh, I think that's beginning to be pretty obvious if uh, if we didn't know it already we know it now. Um, so this morning as I as I talk about Easter you know you, you do this for enough years And you begin to wonder, is there another way to talk about Easter? Is there a different take on it? Um, and the truth is, there really isn't. Um, uh, the resurrection is the resurrection and it doesn't need any help. <laughs> it doesn't need any help in terms of trying to make it catchy or any of those things. Communication and improving our communication is always a good thing, but but the resurrection is the resurrection and it's literally the linchpin on which our Christian faith is based. And so um, I get a lot of questions about, um, about God, obviously, when people find out I'm a pastor Um, try to connect with them. I try to keep that from being uh, something I let people know right away simply because people often, when I do that, they kind of put me in a box and they think uh, I'm a certain way when uh, I might not be like that. Uh, But I get a lot of questions and two questions in particular that come up often when people are asking questions about God, uh, one of them is, is there a God? And, and, you know, is there a God? How do you know there's a God? So it's just, it's, there are questions around that. And I'm going to do my best to speak into these questions as we kind of move forward. The second one is this, if there's a God, where is he when I'm suffering? Where is he when things are not going the way I, I think they should go? Or, uh, you know, why do uh, bad things happen to good people. And, and so there's lots of different ways to frame the question, but those are two, the two of the basic questions. Is there a God? Um, and where is he, if he is there, where is he when I'm suffering? And so let me tackle the first question. Is there a God? Yes. Moving on to the second question. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That was a big one for me. Um, the Bible has something to say about that. And we'll get to that in just a second, but there are lots of arguments about the existence of God. Um, Let me just give you a few. Um, The argument from change, the argument from efficient causality, the argument from time and contingency, the argument from degrees of perfection, the design argument, the argument from contingency, the argument from the world as an interacting whole, the argument from miracles, from consciousness, from truth, from the origin of the idea of God, the ontological argument, and so on and so on. the argument from desire, the argument from aesthetic experience, the argument from religious experience, and that's just a few of the many, many arguments for the existence of God. So if you have questions about that, which some people do, then take a look at some of these um, because it's an intellectual exercise. God doesn't ask us to have faith in him, uh, what we would call, what people would call blind faith. He never asks us to do this. There's plenty of evidence for who he is, his existence and his interaction with humanity and the earth if you're looking for it, if you want to find it. Um, Even one of the disciples, the Bible says, was a doubter. And so the the fact that doubt comes up about whether there is a God or whether there isn't a God, um, that's normal. And it's a process that we have to engage in. But we have to be intellectually honest. And that's the thing that I discovered when I began to go into this is if I would be willing to be intellectually honest about it, then I would discover things that were discoverable, for lack of a better term. Again, there's lots of different arguments, and one of the ones that helped me the most was the argument from design. When I first um, joined the military, I'd, I'd gone to college prior to joining the military, and it was way too expensive for me, so I joined the military to help pay for college, and so as I got involved in that, my intention ultimately was to become an architect. My dad was a landscaper. I'd grown up around architects, landscape architects, and and different different ones, and so I had a heart to be an architect, maybe not a landscape architect, but an architect, and so um, I had some desires about uh, architecture because I love design and I love to think about those things and the way things fit together was fascinating to me. And then I found out that you have to use math with alphabet with the alphabet mixed in, which I saw as a violation of purity laws, so I couldn't get involved in that too deeply. I'm not a big fan of of math. But really, what happened is I got a call into the into the ministry, and and I and encountered God, and so I went a different direction. Turned out, I became an architect, just a different kind of architect. But that's a story for another day. Um, but here's kind of the design thing that kind of helped me. Uh, if you think of it in, in terms of standing in front of a building, um, the question is, did that building come into existence by itself or did it have some kind of intelligent design? Was someone involved in making such an intricate, um, amazingly designed and put together building? And the answer, you know, is of course that a tornado didn't come through and put a building together. They come through and they tear them apart, but they don't put them together. And we consciously... Or subconsciously we kind of know that and so there's an interesting story from a, a preacher out in California he said he was trying to trying to work through this and he had this idea to have a little fun with his wife so he had a shed in his backyard and he um, he had a he had converted shed that he used as an office to study in and so he'd go out there and they, they had an orange tree on the way out and so he said oranges had fallen on the ground and so just to have a bit of fun he took some oranges and he put them in a five by five grid perfectly arranged on the ground in a five by five grid. And so um, eventually his wife came out to see how he was doing and see if he wanted to, to eat lunch and that kind of thing. And she <laughs> comes in and she asked him, she said, why did you put the oranges in a, in a grid like that? And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and She said, you know what I'm talking about. I walked by and there's, you do stuff like this. There's the oranges. And why, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't do that. That's how they fell. And so said pauses for a second. She goes, do you take me for an idiot? (laughs) And of course, he couldn't answer that question. He'd be in a whole lot of trouble. But his point was that it's obvious when you look at something so intricately designed that it didn't come about by accident. Then someone was engaged in it. So that's an intellectual argument. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Um, but that helped me because when I saw that and when I began to discover and look at the questions that were asked, I looked into evolution, you know, the theory of evolution, which uh, people don't call theory, they call a fact, but it's still a theory. And the whole idea behind this is there's another option to believe in God. There's, there are other options, other places you can go rather than choosing to believe in God, but it's not a blind choice. Some people, maybe it is, but it shouldn't be. It's a choice of I want to explore the evidence intellectually and I want to know that there is a God. And so that's a way to apprehend God. And so that question was answered for me in so many ways through the different arguments. Is there a God? Of course there is. It makes makes sense. And of course I had an encounter with God and discovered who he was and began to have a relationship with him. And so we're off to the races. But the second question is maybe a little bit harder in some ways. And that's where is God when I'm suffering? And so so it's an old, old question. It's a question that comes up anytime apologists um, are speaking at, at colleges or wherever. This question always comes up. If God is good, um, then he can't be all powerful because look at bad things happening. Or if God is all powerful, then he can't be good because he's letting things happen. And so it sounds like a really good argument. And it's a great argument to pursue if you want to pursue it intellectually. But it doesn't answer the question, really, of what's going on. And that's the pain and the suffering, the challenges that we're walking through or we're experiencing, whether whether that's relationship brokenness, whether that's the death of a loved one, whether that's seeing the injustice that's in the earth, which, by the way, the question that there is injustice and the sense that you feel and the violation and the anger and the rising up in your own heart of, of of against injustice proves that justice is a thing. Because without it, there would be no injustice. And so it goes back to the first cause, and you're back to, is God who he really says he is? So great questions to ask. But everybody has a worldview about this, whether you admit it, whether you think about it, whether you process it, whether you write it down or you it, studied, studied it, you still have a worldview about God and about suffering. Does he exist? Does he allow suffering? Why does he allow that? And so we're in the midst of this incredible crisis, in, not just in our, our region or even in our nation, but the entire world. It's unprecedented in ways we've, we've, we can't even imagine. We, it's, it's impossible to imagine what's going on right now and the fear that rises up, and people so terrified of what may come. And really, the end of all of this, the terrifying thing that comes, is death. And the whole point about the resurrection is what Jesus is trying to say in the resurrection is that death is swallowed up in victory, and it doesn't get the last word. But in many people's hearts, it has the last word, which is why there's so much fear, and why maybe we worry so much and we go after that because we are so short-sighted and limited in our thinking. But again, my answering this question or going after the answer to this question about suffering and about those kinds of things, why do these things happen? It, you have to understand there's a worldview and so you, you're going to create a worldview in your head based on imperfect uh, answers, based on opinion, based on circumstances, based on evidence, Or what we should be doing is building our worldview on the revealed truth of who God says he is and what he's about. And when we do that, again, it goes back to a choice. So I want to kind of tackle this question through a passage in uh, First John, or sorry, in in uh, John chapter 11, the gospel of John. And this is the story of Lazarus. So this is right before Jesus is going uh, to go into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and then the events of the Holy Week, Good Friday, the cross, and, and again today, the resurrection. So this is the story that came before, but it's also about resurrection. And so um, just to kind of build the context in John 11, uh, Lazarus is sick and word comes to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, but the Bible says that he doesn't go to him right away. Um, and he, he makes this comment that's really interesting. He says to his disciples, he said, his sickness won't end in death, which it, we all know the story. If we've read the story, we know that he dies. He ends up, it ends up in death. And so what a funny thing for Jesus to say that his sickness is not going to end in death. So eventually he goes to Bethany, um, and he says this about, about uh, Lazarus to his disciples. He says, Lazarus is asleep. And, and he said, I, I have to go wake him up. Now, by this time, Lazarus was dead. And um, it's an interesting picture, again, from the perspective of the disciples, it's not making a lot of sense. And he says, Lazarus is asleep, he's not dead, and I have to go wake him up. So is he dead or isn't he dead? I think that's the question. And it goes on in the story, and we find out that in our perspective, he's dead. And we know that because his sister says um, when, he, when Jesus is about to open the tomb, ask him to open the tomb, his sister says, don't do that. It's been four days. He stinks. He's, his body has decomposed. This will be an unpleasant, it's bad enough that we're grieving. It will be even worse if you open that tomb, which again comes back to the, the short-sightedness of our humanity towards what Jesus is doing and what he's on about. And so again, Jesus arrives in Bethany and before he goes in, uh, maybe there's crowds with him because the Bible says there were crowds who'd been following him. So I'm not sure why he doesn't go into Bethany, into the city, but he stays outside. And the Bible says that Martha, one of the sisters, comes out to meet him. And she says something really profound, though I'm sure in the moment she didn't realize the significance of it. And this is what she said in John 11:21. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So think about that for a second. She's, she's saying to Jesus, um, it's a geographical question. The problem was you didn't come when you should have come. You, you stayed away. And because you stayed away, the events in this scenario, in this sto- story, took a turn for the worse. Had you been here, you could have prevented it. And I think that's an interesting question in suffering because that's really the question that we ask. God, are you here with me in this why haven't you prevented it? That's a great question. But even then, if you have a reason for having not prevented it, which maybe maybe it's not just about God allowing it. Maybe there are other actors in the play. Maybe there are other, other things going on, other actors on the stage, so to speak, rather than just you and just God. And we forget that so often. And so she asks Jesus, she tells him, if you would been here, Lord, he wouldn't have died. And so Jesus kind of avoids the question for a second, and he goes on. Um, In verse 25, because she's asking about, you know, he's talking about his death. And Jesus goes on. He says, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. So that's, again, an interesting thing. He didn't say there is a resurrection because that's how we think of it. We think about Easter Sunday being the, the resurrection day but that's not what Jesus says about the resurrection. That was the prevailing theology of the day that, that in the last day, everyone would be raised up you know, to suffer judgment or to suffer the joys of heaven. We understand these, this even in the new covenant, um, we get it. But Jesus said, I am, not that there is one, but I am the resurrection. Not that it's an event or a thing, but it turns out the resurrection is actually a person. And that's really hard to think about and really hard to wrap our head around when we go after it, which is why we so often skip over scriptures like this rather than dwell on them and let God speak to us out of them. Here's the NIV version. It says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. That's important. Even though they die. So that's a contradictory statement. The ones who believe in me will live even though they die. So it gives her something to think about. And then he goes on, he says, and whoever lives by believing in in me will will never die. So he says, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So he says, if you believe in me, even though you die, you'll live. And then he says, if you are alive in me, you'll never die. So which is it? I mean, it seems again, a contradictory statement. And then he asks her this really interesting question. He says, do you believe this? And of course she says yes. And uh, and and she thinks she understands, but it goes on for what we see later, she, it, it turns out that she doesn't. And that's where we are so often. Um, what's interesting about some of the stories, something that's been in my heart for a while and I've been talking about it, is that so often we make God out to be like us, but the Bible says that he is altogether not like us. And so in Genesis, it talks about we are made in his image. And it's a subtle little twist that we make so often. But what we do is we actually think of God as being made in our image. And actually, that's how atheists and how people who don't believe in God picture Christians. They say to us as Christians, you have made a God. You created the problem of suffering and brokenness in the world. And because of that, you have created some story to make you feel better about it. So when I first began to pursue Christianity, that thought came up. And and you can't dismiss it out of hand. You have to think about that. But is that the truth? Too often people say things with implicit bias, not even knowing that they're biased. So it goes on. Martha goes back and she sends verses. She goes back to Bethany. She sends her sister Mary to Jesus. If you remember, these sisters were very different. Martha had come with an intellectual question and a theological question about um, discussing the resurrection. And Martha is a very emotional person, of course. In verse 32 in John 11, it says, When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, you know, my heart breaks when I hear that because I've been there too. My mom passed away um, very early in, 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 my, in her life, in my life. I was in my 20s. And I think about that often. I remember the impression that God gave me when my mom passed away. She was a believer. And, um, and she, when she passed away, I had this picture that God I know God gave me that she was on a safari, And it was like she was on a safari and I could see her. And she was seeing things that she'd only dreamed of before because she talked about that. She talked about actually being a missionary at one point, but she'd never traveled abroad. And so I could see her seeing these animals or these incredible wonders for the first time and being so excited and so wanting to tell me about it. But there was a distance between us where she couldn't communicate that and and that she didn't have a phone that she could. There was no way to communicate what she was, the joy in the amazing uh, world that she was experiencing for the first time. And God, in in comforting me, reminded me, it won't be long and you'll join her that's been 20 something almost 30 years now seems like a long time but again god is altogether not like us and time to him doesn't mean the same thing as it does to us it limits us but it doesn't limit him so the next verse is a powerful verse it's actually the shortest verse in the entire bible and this is what it says after hearing this it says jesus wept and so that's fascinating that in his humanity, he, he sensed he sensed something. And we, we always think that he just cried because, because Lazarus had died. But think about that for a second. He knew what he was about to do. He had told the disciples that he was going to wake him up and that he wasn't dead. And he was going to be alive. So what did he weep about? And part of the answer comes in the verses after the people who had followed Mary out thinking she was going to mourn overheard this and it says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him after Jesus wept. And then others said of him, could not he opened, he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. Now hear that again. It says, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. So you see the question again, what about suffering? Why didn't he come and 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 rescue Lazarus. Excuse me. Why did he let him die? Question. Why over and over and over again? If God loves us, then why sickness? If God loves us, then why do children suffer? Why does evil so often seem, uh, sorry, good, evil so often triumph over over evil? Vice versa. I got it backwards. Sorry about that. Why death? Why Why do we die? What's all that about? And, and the truth is, there are answers to that in Scripture. There is a biblical worldview as to why. The, the, God talks of, of a, a broken world, a world that was created for none of what we're experiencing, and then it breaks in, and sin comes, and it takes us away from God, and we are separated from God, and then the story of redemption ensues until it gets to the the culmination of Jesus on the cross. But let me give you a geography lesson before we kind of start wrapping this up the sisters both of them asked the same question if you were here so they were thinking in terms of geography they were thinking in a limited way they were saying lord you are limited by time and space wherever you were there was nothing you could do about what was going on here and so part of what they were saying was that that you can't intervene that you don't have the power or if you do have the power you're unwilling which one is it and so why do we ask those questions? And so, again, I mentioned this scripture earlier. This is in Psalm 50, verse 21. It says, these things you've done and kept silent. You, this is God speaking to the people. It says, you thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. So he's speaking of justice. He's going. He's not going to be unjust. He's going to bring justice. And so in that process, what he's saying to the people is, you, the mistake you made is that you You didn't think I would come and speak to this issue. You thought in me giving you time, it was because I wasn't involved in the scenario. But what you forget is that I'm giving you time to come to your senses. I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you time to see things accurately. I'm giving you space for redemption. I'm not sealing it just yet. I'm not culminating it just yet because I long for you to know me and I long for you to know who I am so that you can be like me. And so he says to them, I am altogether not like you. But this is the mistake we make. It's so often, rather than remembering that we are made in his image, we somehow make him out to be in our image. So the Greeks did this. It's very fascinating. One writer said this of the Greek gods because of their passions and the frailties and the proclivities and and all the things that these Greek gods did. He said, if you take away the human attributes that were given to the Greek gods, then Greek mythology shrinks by 95%. And so this is an age-old story. The The challenge of this so often is we, we want to come to God, and, and, and Job, uh, Job asks questions, and we see the same concept. And so God says, who are you? Where were you when I did this? And he speaks of the majesty of creation. He speaks the, of the massiveness of all of creation and eternity and everything that Job can only get a glimpse of and what he's doing is he's bringing a humility back to him and, and i think god is in so many ways is, is reminding us you you think that you're like you, you think that i'm like you but i want to remind you that you're actually like me And so it's important to understand that because, again, we pride ourselves on being modern and sophisticated, but in so many ways, when it comes to God, we haven't changed our thinking in thousands of years. We still give way to idolatry. We create gods in our own image. We create gods for ourselves. And so the question is, are we doing that? Are we making God in our own image? Or are we allowing God to reveal himself to be who he actually is? not who we wish he was. And that's important. The same time in all this, we can't hide behind this expecting him to to, to deny his revelation of who he is and what he wants to do. In other words, we we can't pretend that things are okay. We have to ask the questions... We pray and we ask the Lord for healing and we ask the Lord for change and sometimes it doesn't happen the way we think it should and we have a choice to make. We can, we can ascribe to God what we're thinking about Him because of what we see in our limited circumstances or we can actually ask the question of Him and ascribe to Him who He has revealed Himself to be. God, in Your goodness, what what is going on here? What do I do? How am I part of the answer to the question of the suffering that's in the world? I, I was sharing this with someone just recently. It's fascinating that not many atheists build hospitals but christians do and throughout time in history when the pandemic and 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 the plagues have have brought themselves to bear um even in martin luther's day there was a plague and he found himself serving and helping and and at the same time he came and he said and i washed myself and i cleansed myself and i took care took great great effort not to to put myself at unnecessary risk but in the meantime he still risked his life to, to, to help and to alleviate the suffering. And that is the mark of Christ inside of us. There's this interesting passage in Mark 6 where Christ couldn't heal many sick people. And what's fascinating about this, the Bible says he goes in and, and they're super excited about him in the be- beginning. They're astonished, the Bible says, at the content of his pre- preaching. They give them. they ascribe to him the wisdom of God. And, 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 and it goes back again. They see him as a representative, as the Messiah. And then it says they took their eyes off who he was and put them on who they thought he should be. And so they asked, isn't he the son of Mary and Joseph? Don't his sisters live here? And so they went from seeing him accurately and who God had revealed him to be and walking in his majesty and his power to putting a limitation on him and bringing him down to themselves. And the Bible said in that moment, in their unbelief, when they brought God down, that, that what he was able to do before, he wasn't doing now. So he was speaking healing over people and they were being healed. And the Bible said the limit came and he, it said that he put his hands on a few sick people and they were healed. So it didn't take away God's power in the sense that, that Jesus wasn't limited to where he couldn't perform miracles. It just said that the only ones that he, were, he was able to, to, to do were the ones where the people came to him. And, and the, the implication is simple, really the ones who would come to him and allow him to touch them, they would come in in submission before him and say, would you heal me? What's fascinating about that is every single time he did. And the only thing that limited the other people is because they would not come near him. And I think that's what happens as well with us. Um, Peter did the same thing when Jesus invited him out to walk on water, which is an impossibility, he comes out. And, and Jesus speaks to him and says, come join me. And, and he sees Jesus accurately. And the Bible says he steps out in faith and he walks across the water. And we know the story. He looks at Jesus and then he looks down. He gets captured in the, by the storm. The storm was raging the whole time. Jesus was walking on the water in the storm and the storm was raging. And then he looks at Jesus and he has faith and he walks and he does and he's walking without limits, literally. And then the moment he takes his eyes off God, and who God is, and puts his eyes on the circumstances and what is happening around him, he immediately begins to sink. And it's a lesson to us. God is altogether not like us. And so So many times what we've limited God in is really what we see in in his revelation is is that the limitation is not in him, but it's in us. That he longs to work through his people. He longs to speak life into us. He longs to do, he said that the things that he did on the earth, that we would do even greater things than that. And he laid hands on people who had leprosy and the people who had leprosy no longer had it. Where in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, if a person had leprosy, you pushed them away because there there wasn't. wasn't the power to heal it and Jesus comes in and he breaks that barrier and his power and his resurrection power the same power that raised him from the dead the bible says dwells in you and I as believers but but you have to believe you have to grow in your belief one man even came to Jesus and and he says do you believe and Jesus the man said help my unbelief I I recognize that I've limited you and I'm not allowing and something inside me needs to change so let me wrap it up with this Jesus' death on the cross communicated something to us about suffering. It wasn't just that God would suffer with us. You saw this in the life of Christ. He came and he put himself among us. He was with us and he suffered just like we did in the sense that he felt felt emotional agony and pain. The Bible speaks of that as, as he's getting ready to go to the cross in the garden. But... What we've done, if we're not careful, is we've limited God in saying just that he suffered with us. Most of us don't even believe in that. But the Bible says that he went even further than that and he suffered for us. In other words, what the intention of the brokenness of sin was separation from God. That was what our sin was doing, was separating us completely and forever from God. And Jesus in his great love for us comes and offers himself as the sacrifice and the Bible says that all of our sin was laid upon him. There were so many stories of this and, and shadows of this in the old covenant of the sin on the, laid on the back of an animal and sent outside the city to be killed. The same thing happened with Jesus. And then Jesus, the Bible said, was resurrected on that glorious day. And that this was proof that in God raising Christ from the dead, that the sacrifice for all of our sin had been fulfilled. So God poured all of his wrath All of the wrath for sin that God had because of the the, the fact that he was a God of justice was poured out not on you and I, but on Christ in our place. And even on the cross, you have a man on either side of Jesus in, in the same picture with different perspectives in how they saw him. One man said, if you're the Christ, if you are, this doubt and unbelief, if you are, then get us down from here. Not even admitting that he was there because of his own sinfulness and yet the other man on the other side of the cross looked at Christ and said uh, he knew I'm here for a valid reason but you you've done nothing wrong and so when you come not if he completely believed in who Jesus was when you come into your kingdom will you remember me and Jesus said today you're going to be with me in paradise so here's the thing that we need to draw from this God is not so far away This is uh, Acts 17. It says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. There are a million questions I have. For God, when I re- reach heaven, one of them is: Do you not own a watch? Because it seems like He never does anything within my timetable. Um, like I said before, time is not how He sees it. it's not. We don't see it the same way. But the Bible says this: It says we will know, as we're known. In other words, I think there's going to be a moment when every question we have about the suffering and about the pain and about why this and all those questions that we feel are so valid and so important right now that on that day, the Bible says, we will be known, we will know as we have been known. In other words, everything is explained. And I have this sense, this sense of me and this picture of me, there's gonna be a moment where I get there with all these questions, this, this backed up dam of questions waiting to just explode on God. And in that moment, that moment's going to hit, and I'm going to know, I'm going to know him the way he's known me." And there's going to be a moment where I just go, "Oh, of course, I believe that. I believe that's what happened. Here's the thing. You have to make a choice about who God is. Do you believe that now? Not then, not then will your questions be answered. We all say that that's true. But the question is, is that what we ascribe to Him now? Do we love him? Do we believe that now? So we have to choose to believe what God says about himself or we're forced to make up our own God. And my challenge is, is the God that we create is often very fickle. But the God that we serve has, been, has risen from the grave. This Christ, this Messiah, has rescued us and he has taken everything that would keep God far away where he would be distant and he has brought him close. And the choices yours and I to make about what we do with the proclamation of the resurrection. What does that mean to you and me? No longer am I dead. It's not about good or bad. It's no longer am I dead. I am now alive and my life is hidden in God with Christ. That's the question. So I ask you and I challenge you this morning, draw near to God. Because he has not taken himself away. He has not run from you. Just like Adam in the garden, when he sinned, he ran and hid. And what Jesus does is exactly the opposite. He challenges us that because he has taken our sin upon him, even in our sin, we don't have to run away. We can run to him. So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And God, we thank you that that because of what Jesus did, Lord, not only does he live, but I live. And so, Lord, let my life come alive in you. Lord, let me see you accurately. Let me ascribe to you what you have revealed about yourself rather than what I'm choosing to think about you from some anonymous source or circumstances or situation, that I would see you accurately, that there's enough evidence in Scripture and in my encounters with you to see that you are a God of love and of mercy and of kindness and goodness. And I see it ultimately in the picture of what occurred on the cross. So Lord, thank you for the cross. But more importantly, thank you that that's not where it ended, that it, it's just the beginning because in the cross, in the resurrection, it no longer is anything dead, but everything has come alive. And that's our heart and our prayer, Lord, that we would come alive in you in Jesus' name. Amen.